I'm Natalia Bayona. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 12th, 2016. Coming up, we'll hear from Susie Friedman of the Environmental Defense Fund about how large companies are trying to make their whole supply chain, especially growers of corn, soy, and other commodity crops, more environmentally sustainable. Let's start with... Let's start with some science events and anniversaries. On this day, 103 years ago, American physicist Willis Eugene Lamb Jr. was born. Lamb won the Nobel Prize in Physics for his discoveries concerning the fine structure of the hydrogen spectrum. He shared the award with Polkarp Kush. According to the Nobel Committee, Kush won for his precision determination of the magnetic moment of the electron. Lamb was able to determine precisely the surprising shift in electron energies in a hydrogen atom. It came to be called the Lamb Shift. He died in 2008. And on the science calendar, you have until August 7th to check out a cool exhibition called Robot Revolution at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Kids and adults can interact with cutting-edge technology collection of rarely shown robots from around the world. You can control an all-terrain crawling robot or face off with a tic-tac-toe playing bot. If you're an up-and-coming or experienced poker player, you can challenge a robot to a game of 21. Or if you're in need of a little lovin', you can feel a therapeutic baby seal robot react to your touch. For more information on Robot Revolution, go to dmns.org. And if you're still looking for sciencey things for your kids to do this summer, check out CU Boulder's Science Discovery Program for kids and teenagers. Several summer camps are actually still available. They give kids the chance to conduct hands-on science in the outdoors. Field camps include Boulder Rocks, Life in Ponds and Streams, and Wild in the Woods. For more info, go to sciencedescovery.colorado.edu. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. We couldn't feed the planet without it. Nitrogen is a vital nutrient for crops, but most soils don't produce enough of it to feed anywhere near our 7 billion-plus people on the planet. So, for nearly a century, we've been applying synthetic fertilizer, mostly nitrogen and phosphorus, to grow crops for animals and the mushrooming human population. The problem is we've overindulged, creating vast amounts of waste in the form of nitrogen pollution. In fact, Worldwide, over 90% of the nitrogen used to produce meat and dairy products, along with 80% used to grow plant-based foods, is lost to the environment. It pollutes waterways, creating dead zones like those in the Gulf of Mexico, where the fish can't live. It also contaminates drinking water. Nitrogen fertilizer also contributes to climate change. Nitrous oxide, a byproduct of fertilizing fields, is a potent and long-lived greenhouse gas. State and federal regulators have been getting more stringent 
on growers, pressuring them to dramatically reduce fertilizer runoff from their fields. But another approach, call it the carrot versus stick, is also taking hold. So major food retailers, including and starting with Walmart, as well as food producers, are transforming their whole supply chains, making food production much less carbon and nitrogen intensive. Susie Friedman is a sustainable agriculture expert with the Environmental Defense Fund. She helped design a tool that large-scale growers of commodity crops can use to track and ultimately reduce their environmental impact. And she joined us on the phone from New York. Susie, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I really appreciate you coming on. This is a huge, huge topic, and I know you've got a big piece of it. So when we start jumping in with what, what is the problem you're trying to address? And as you just covered, what we really are trying to address is how can we feed the world sustainably. And a really big part of that is the building blocks of the entire food system, the corn, the wheat, the soybeans, and other major commodity crops that not only span the landscape and have the biggest footprint in terms of acres, uh, but also are the building blocks of just about everything that uh, is on the grocery shelves and and that we uh, buy and eat and has significant impacts on water quality, on climate, on land use. And we need to find ways that we can both produce a lot of those crops and feed the world, uh, but do it in ways that dramatically reduce the impacts on water, the impacts on climate, so that we can continue to produce that food and and have access to the water and and a more stable climate. And I know, as I said in the intro, it's been, what, about a century since the creation of this Haber-Bosch method, this synthetic or commercialized synthetic fertilizer. Before that, and even with that, I mean, there is naturally produced nitrogen from, what, lightning and legumes and microbes and such, but not nearly enough to produce the crops we need to feed the planet. Is that the issue? I mean, we can't just rely on nature, right? Exactly. No, if we're going to be able to sustain the population that we have and the population we anticipate having and the changes in uh, food preferences that are going on both here in the U.S. and globally, we need to be able to produce a lot of these crops. And having access to, um, to nitrogen, to phosphorus inputs, opens up a whole new world in terms of being able to produce enough to support the kinds of lifestyles that we have today and and have it be done by a far smaller population um and now you know flowing from the first green revolution of really bringing in those um commercially available uh nutrients and dramatically increasing the amount of crops that could be produced and dramatically increasing yield we now need the next iteration of that green revolution to be able to have those levels of productivity but do it in ways that mean a lot less is lost to the water into the air, and then that will be good for everyone all around, from the the farmers, the agricultural system, and all of us that rely on those um, those natural resources and that food system. Yeah, interesting, and we definitely see this growing, still small but growing niche called, well, organic farming, and in this case, you're not talking about that, or not necessarily, right? 
No, we're not. You know, and, and organic is great, and there is definitely a role and a value to it. But if we are going to be able to feed the world sustainably, we need sustainability not to be a niche market that is um, significantly more expensive. We need it to be the norm. And so we really need to hone in on those things that can be done within the broader agricultural system that can really be mainstream, that are economically viable, can be adopted at scale, and support the levels of productivity on the footprint of land that can um, meet not just the seven, seven and a half billion people we have today, but the nine or 10 billion we anticipate by 2050. But it also seems like over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, there's been so many buyouts of smaller, as you would say, niche organic companies by major, you know, Dean Foods and major food companies with Walmart and King Supers and all selling them. It sounds like, I mean, they used to call it organic ink. It's not just niche, but it sounds like you're still saying it's, it can't be large enough, or maybe it's not an either or, but it can't be at a large enough scale to get the job done. And you're right. I don't think it's an either-or. I think that there is a role for a whole spectrum of production. And I think that growth in the organic industry has had a, a, you know, an enormous value in educating the broader public about issues around sustainability and um, the considerations that need to go into what they buy and what they eat and elevating that for these very large companies that consumer interest in sustainability, even for those not buying organic, is very important to their bottom line and their futures. And so that growth in organic, while dramatic, is still a relatively small percentage. Um, It has been really instrumental, I think, in bringing issues around um, how food is produced, what's in it, um, to a much bigger playing field and bringing it into that discussion around mainstream ag. And there's a lot that um, how, you know, how we go about doing sustainability in mainstream ag can learn from the organic agricultural sector. And I think there's also a lot that organic can learn in terms of what does it take to do something at a very, very large scale. And so it really isn't an either-or, and they shouldn't be against each other. We really need to move forward in terms of how do we get to scale the kinds of production that are highly productive, meet growing consumer demands, can be more resilient and have a smaller footprint on water, on climate, on other natural resources that we all need to to survive, including that, um, the agricultural system. So I want to zoom in on Environmental Defense Fund's role in this and this tool that you've created for growers. But first, since sustainability is such a fuzzy term, it means everything and nothing at the same time. how, How do you define it and how does that definition fit into this tool you've created? Really, really good point. So the work that um, that we're doing in terms of these major commodity crops, we have really honed in on the impacts on water quality and on climate um, as really fundamental and critical to the um, availability of those resources and the resilience of the food system going forward. There are many other aspects to broader sustainability that are really important, but we've really honed in on the water quality and climate um, aspects. And 
that's really what this program sustain does. It is actually much more than just a tool. This is a program that works with farmers to help them use their nutrients more efficiently to maintain those high yields but reduce what is lost and to improve their soil health through things like cover crops, reduce tillage, improve crop rotation so that those soils can be more highly productive over a longer period of time and be more resilient when we have drought, we have flood, which you know we never seem to have a typical year anymore. Um, it, it's just the extremes of weather have gotten more and more frequent. And I know this is not the first time Environmental Defense Fund, just for those out there who might be going, what's an environmental nonprofit doing, you know, teaming up with major companies like this? Certainly EDF and others have done it with coal and reducing our fossil fuel imprints. What, What got you guys involved in this? You know, we, EDF, a very long time ago, really saw a huge opportunity to do much more to get different aspects of sustainability, whether in agriculture or other sectors, to scale much more effectively by working in partnership with the major players in any given sector and really looking very hard at how sustainability can be a valuable asset to a company, be something that benefits their bottom line, benefits their business, makes them a better business. And so we really come at a lot of our work through that lens very core focus on science, on economics, um, but also really on that partnership and that business aspect of sustainability. And so when we're working on this big issue of the sustainability of our food and agriculture system, that really brings us to those major players in that food system, all the way from the agricultural retailers that are working with farmers at a very, very large scale and are often their go-to advisors when it comes to how they manage their crops, through food companies that are buying most of these crops, the protein and the consumer packaged goods companies, right through companies like Walmart that are consumer facing. So what, what's some of the science behind it? Like you said, there's so many facets of it. Water quality, and I take it some of that is related to the fertilizer runoff into waterways and groundwater included, right? But is it that you, down on the field level, are helping them measure what all these inputs and outputs are so that, so that they can do their so-called environmental budget? doing, and again, this is EDF working through the trusted advisors that farmers are already working with. So it's not, we're not working directly with the farmers, but we're working with, in this case, a company called United Suppliers that has a network of ag retailers around the country working with farmers on about 45 million acres and also up into Canada. And so it's through that infrastructure that we're working with them to build a program that helps them bring more information and better information into their discussions with farmers about how how much nitrogen and phosphorus to put on the fields, when to put it on, what form they want to use, um, what's the best way to to try out and then expand adoption of something like cover crops, how to reduce their tillage or introduce more uh, diverse crop rotations. And so a lot of this really comes down to having better information to make better decisions and easier access to different tools and technologies that help them do that. And, you know, nitrogen and, and other crop nutrients are really difficult to manage because we can't control the weather. And so they're trying 
trying to manage in a very uh, dynamic system and manage a nutrient that is really hard to keep there. And so by having more information, they're able to uh, use that nutrient more efficiently, make more precise decisions while reducing the risk that that could reduce their yield. Yeah, and are you also working with um, dairy farms? I mean, there's all the nitrates in the urea, in the manure. Is that a big issue as well, or are you, in this case, working more with crop production? You know, there is a very strong tie between the two because the vast majority of dairy farmers are growing crops, and then they're also buying crops from off the farm. And so a program like Sustain, and then what we're really trying to do, looks at all the sources of nutrients that are going into that crop production. And the better information you're able to bring to decision-making, the more nutrient and soil health value you're able to get from using that dairy manure or poultry litter or whatever it might be as a source of crop nutrients. And then you can even further um, become even more efficient in what supplemental commercial fertilizer that farmer might need to use. So there's a really, really big opportunity to get even more value out of that manure as a source of crop nutrients by having more information into how to, how to use it better, use it more efficiently, um, and have better economics overall. Right. So the other thing I'm curious about is you hear so much from growers, a lot of it is probably quite true, that they're squeezed already so much by state and federal regulators, be it EPA, be it environmental quality agencies within the states to reduce their water use, to reduce their fertilizer use. Like, Why would they take this as an additional, what appears to be a voluntary step beyond what they have to do? Yep. Now, excellent question. And as we work um, with a lot of different agricultural organizations and with companies like United Suppliers, it's clear that there are really three main drivers of this. One is economics. You know, if you have more information and you can use your inputs more efficiently, that is good for your bottom line. That can save you money either um, by enabling you to, um, you know, use those nutrients more efficiently or get more yield out of the same amount of nutrients. So it's it's good economics and good management. Um, a second is reducing risk by using nutrients more efficiently by improving their soil health, they can be more resilient as we face more and more extreme weather. So whether it's a drought or um, really uh, high levels of, of rain and so very wet, um, this kind of management enables them to sustain their yields better through those highs and lows, of, um, particularly when it comes to, to water and, and temperature. And you know, then beyond that, um, being part of a program that can track and demonstrate um, this improved environmental performance is very good for community relations, for reducing worries about um, regulatory or legal burdens, um, and just build up the, the reputation of the sector overall. Yeah, so bring us down to a field level, if you could. I know this is fairly new, but similar to some other programs that have existed. And so how would, say, United Suppliers be educating or working with the growers on the field and taking these measurements and making their info more transparent? Or do you have measurables as to whether it's actually helping boost production or lower costs or play into the goodwill of United Suppliers so that they can put another label on it or something? Yep. So 
so the way the um, all of the uh, staff at the retail um, outlets at the local level that are participating in Sustain go through training, so that they understand what's in the Sustain program, the different nutrient management practices and and technologies, um, the soil health measures, and how to adopt them, and how to work with their growers to do that, as well as how to bring this program to their growers through communications. And then that individual um, uh, consultant retailer will be working with the grower to use um, one of the or, or a variety of the tools that are in that sustain toolbox, whether it's a tool called AdaptN that brings a computer system and an online program that brings um, weather data into how they're able to um, hone in on the right uh, nutrient application rates and, and how they can adjust that rate based on changing the timing, um, encouragement and training and how to move from more fall application to spring and, and split and in-season applications, which increase efficiency, information about different cover crop species and what, what is going to work well in what different areas. So it's really training all the way from uh, the ag retailer and then you Using that that training so that they can use that information and those tools and and products with the farmer at that farm level, and then tracking what they're adopting and how it works, um, both so that they can use that information over time, season after season, to continue to help that farmer improve, but also then that aggregated data is able to report on the performance of the um, those retailers and the program across the sourcing area in a way that anonymizes and doesn't. Um, share individual farmer information, just shows that footprint across that area. And then that's what also is the supply chain moves towards greater and greater focus on sustainability, provides those food companies with the information that they want to plug into as they pursue sustainable sourcing goals. So it sounds like it's this whole toolkit that um, say, you, in this case, United Suppliers to you guys would be training the growers with. A lot of these techniques they probably already use, right, like using cover crops? Yep. Some farmers would already be using, and so exactly how sustain plays out in a given location for a given farmer is going to depend on what that farmer is already doing, where there are real opportunities to improve, the, you know, the, just the specific situations that they're dealing with, which is why this isn't just a checklist. This isn't, okay, everybody goes and does X, Y, Z or applies this rate or does this exact thing, but a package that is then adapted through that local retailer and for that given farmer through that trusted relationship. And so then it essentially trickles up to, say, United Suppliers, which has, what, set a goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and improve water quality X percent by X year? United Suppliers actually made one of the biggest goals out there when it comes to supply chain sustainability. They set a goal back in 2014 to get 10 million acres in the Sustain program by 2020, which is just fantastic and really exciting. So 10 million sounds like a lot to me. Put put that in context. You said 10 million out of, what, 45 million acres they control through their growers? Right, right. So they're working with farmers across about 45 million acres. So they've put a commitment on the table that is almost a quarter of their um, of their footprint. But then you need to put that in the context of um, the broader commodity crop sector, which is probably closer to about 250 million acres. So United Suppliers takes us a big chunk of the way there, but then we need a lot of other ag retailers and then the food companies making similar commitments 
so that this truly can become the norm. Well, and it sounds like you were saying uh, Walmart has already made a big dent in doing that, and, and more companies are getting on board. Certainly Unilever seems to be one. Yes. No, Walmart made a big commitment and pushed to work with its um, a number of its suppliers to address the water quality and climate impacts from uh, commodity crop production, working collaboratively with a number of its suppliers. Um, Unilever is certainly taking bold action. So are Kellogg's and General Mills. Smithfield Food has taken a very significant commitment in terms of the sustainable sourcing of feed grains for its hogs. Um, Campbell Soup is also using the Sustain program. And I think this will just continue to grow. So are you more or less hopeful about the direction of agriculture? Oh, I am definitely more hopeful. You know, there's a big challenge ahead. There's still a long way to go. But I think the action that we've seen over the past few years from these food companies, from companies like Smithfield, and then from companies like United Suppliers, are really seeing the connection go all the way from um, consumer-facing companies like Walmart through this supply chain all the way to growers and having it really drive big commitments and, and I think, big, big impacts to come and benefits to come. And we just have time for one more. So just any um, takeaway for, I hate to say the word consumers, but all of us who eat, not necessarily grow large-scale food. You know, I think the really key thing is that we all really need to be thinking about the uh, environmental and other impacts of our food choices and of the companies that we buy from and really be leaning on those companies not to just create new labels or put a label on this product or that product but to have those companies pay attention and look at and work at their overall footprint, their overall sourcing policies to really drive these things to, to mainstream so that they're commonly available. And that's really the approach a number of these companies are doing. And I think we as consumers need to continue to encourage them and press on them to do so and say, you know what, we're really paying attention. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Susie. Thank you. That was Susie Friedman, a sustainable agriculture expert with the Environmental Defense Fund. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Susan Moran, and I also produce the show. Thanks to Tim Russo for engineering. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Misty Mountain String Band. Visit our website on howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- Four four seven nine nine one one. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Natalia Bayona. And I'm Susan Moran.